And welcome to the latest edition of Match of the Week, the ongoing series within the Let Me Tell You Something podcasting universe, in which myself, the Let Me Tell You Something co-host Lorcan Mullen, is currently recovering from an illness, hence the slightly raspy voice, and your other Let Me Tell You Something co-host, Simon Cross, discuss a match that we've taken it in turns to pick from the wide history and world of pro wrestling. We previously had my pick... With the Kevin Steen El Generico against Super Dragon Excalibur match. And now it's Simon's turn. Simon, you've gone for a match that's out there. Yeah. You could argue it's a very obscure match. Just for the fact that when I was doing my research for this, I found that one of the two participants, although I suppose there are multiple participants really, (laughs) one of the two named wrestlers taking part in this match doesn't have a character profile page on Cage Match. Aye, we're going niche. And we're going to find out very soon why that's the case. So what was your pick, Simon? Where are we? And and maybe you'll need to explain who one of these participants are. Okay. All right, so we are in DDT, looking at a match taking place on the 25th of October 2009. And it's a match between occasional visitor of a branch of the Let Me Tell You Something universe, the Five Star Project, Kota Ibushi, and someone who has never been mentioned before on this podcast, Yoshiiko. Simon, let's. We, we were thinking about doing it, not breaking kayfabe and discussing it as if it were a regular match between two regular wrestlers, but that's not what's the case. So, do you want to give a quick description of Yoshihiko? who, you will not be surprised to know, is the one of the two that doesn't have a cage match profile. <laughs> Could you imagine if it was Kota after all that? <laughs> <laughs> they just really don't rate him. He <laughs> <laughs> was IWGP heavyweight champion. No. <laughs> not on this website, he wasn't. <laughs> there are only 49 stars on that flag. I'll be in the cold, cold ground before I recognise Mizura. Uh, Yoshi Iko is a wrestler who's very good at selling. Is a wrestler with some great entrance attire uh, and probably would have made it bigger on the grander stage if it wasn't for the fact that Yoshihiko is an inanimate object. So Yoshihiko is a blow-up sex doll. You can argue it's one of two things. It is either the ultimate test for a wrestler. There was always that story that people would say how great Ric Flair was because he could get a great match out of a broomstick. Well, this is the broomstick match, essentially. Yeah. You're being asked to have a match against yourself. That's one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is that this is a parody of pro wrestling. And very often, like, modern wrestling and its cliches. And also, the main event Japanese wrestling style. Now, this is something you messaged to me in our uh, pre-recording chats. Now, there was one bit where I definitely agreed with you. But that happens quite late on in the match. So we'll see if we... If, I'll, I'll let you take the floor slightly and see... In, just so you can expand on your parody point. And let's see if the, we're on the same page of the thing I'm thinking of. Well, essentially, it is structured as if it is a main... I mean, this was the main event of this show, taking place at Grackle and Hall. <laughs> oh, Antonio Noki must have been pissed as hell looking at this. 
I mean, think, yeah, that's the thing. Like, think of all of the best of the Super Juniors finals that have happened here. The Misawa, Kabashi, Kawada, Saruta, Fushi, Tawei six-man tag matches we've had happen in this yeah. venue. This was the location of the Kazuo Yamazaki, um, Nobuhiku Takada shoot-style match that we gave five, that we discussed in the Melter 5-star project. But it's also that... I've always one thought this like kind of with Japanese culture that it seems to take the most extremes of every everything. Like it is the most serious for certain things, but also the most ridiculous on the other end of the spectrum. Okay, okay. And that it takes Western culture and kind of reflects it back on itself sometimes. And you you know, Tarrant's on TV back in the day. It was a deluge of Japanese television. <laughs> <laughs> you got the Simpsons parody, Super Happy Fun Time Family Wish Show, or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> I'm back to Super Seizure Monsters. And all that sort of stuff. Japanese culture, it, it is. it seems like it is the... Well, maybe South Korea has got it challenging to it now. The most influenced by Western cultures without losing contact with its own culture. Yeah. When you look at what pro wrestling was when Ricky Dozan brings it, and it is essentially... This merging of the American wrestling that he's taught, but with certain aspects of Japanese culture, Japanese sporting culture. You know, look at how much more serious wrestling's taken in promotions like New Japan and All Japan yeah. compared to American wrestling. And even, like, there are parts of DDT that are serious. There are proper wrestling matches. There are people that argue that DDT at the moment has a better product overall than New Japan does. Mm. Kota Ibushi and Kenny Omega came from DDT. They even managed to do shows at, like, Sumo Hall and Budokan Hall. Yeah. Ibushi managed to get banned from Budokan Hall for years because he did a moonsault off their balcony. (laughs) Of course. Of course he did. But at the same time, you've got the most absurd situation with this, with the blow-up dolls. And we've seen other stuff. We we watched most of a match, but I don't know if we caught the finish. We didn't understand the finish, at the very least, of a cancelled... A match of the week where there was a, a curry death match. Oh yeah, with two wrestlers having a bowl of curry on their heads, and it mm. was up to their opponent to eat the to empty the bowl of yeah. curry. And there was all sorts of things like they were putting extra spicy peppers in it, and so that, <laughs> so that the opponent was having a tougher time to eat the thing. You know, fun, but yeah, we we didn't have uh, the whole match to cover really. But it was it was a whole it was a visual treat. For the eyes. <laughs> and again, the DDT style has influenced all the way into indie wrestling, even to the point that one of the belts, because this is a title versus title match, by the way, people. Not just this is the main event, this is like Hogan Warrior, WrestleMania 6. <laughs> because Ibushi is the KOD Openweight Champion, which is the main singles title of DDT. Whilst Yoshihiko is in one of their 14 reigns as DDT. Iron Man Heavy Metal Weight, which was their version of the Hardcore Championship being defended under 24-7 rules. A bin's held twice. Brandy Rhodes has held it. Look, a- anyone has held it. I like the idea that Brandy Rhodes is an even more absurd version. Like, you know, this is the most ridiculous thing. A bin, Brandy Rhodes. <laughs> but, like, it, unfortunately, it was attached to Joey Ryan when he was doing it, but it was ma- it made a little tour around the United States. Where I recall Scott Hall won the belt off of Joey Ryan. 
and then Colt Cabana comes into his locker room and has his hands on his shoulder whilst he's talking. He's making it that he's talking to Kevin Nash on the phone. He says, can you just read this for me? And he has to get out his reading glasses first. <laughs> says, don't don't get old. Reads from the paper, he says, I give up. And that counts as a submission because Colt <laughs> Cabana's holding him at the time. And there was another point where <laughs> one of the wrestlers won the match, won the belt, and the crowd were cheering them on. And and he says, this is not my belt. This is your belt. And the referee indicated that that was a forfeit. And so the crowd were all collectively <laughs> the new champion. And the ch- crowd was going crazy. But the problem was that end of the show, go away promo. And so the ones at the front are excitedly slapping their hands on the mats. And that's considered a tap out. So the guy <laughs> gets the belt back. Uh, Joey Ryan lost it at one point to Candice LeRae in a dream. That was one other one that I think was done as a claymation. Oh, wow. Obviously, that's age like milk, but not because of the content, more because of the participant. So the the influence of DDT and this absurdity, and again, like taking that 24-7 idea from WWE and going to just this whole other level. And as you say, inanimate objects have not only won the title, but have matches against each other. Yeah. You've heard of tables and ladders matches. Well, they had a table versus a ladder match. Oh, who won? I think the ladder because the table. I was going to say the reach. Yeah, it's got the reach. (laughs) The the best one, I think, though, was when it was the 999th champion and they were going to retire the belts. Because obviously in Japan, they keep track of how... How many mm. people have been the champion? And that's the whole deal when they come out there and it's like the 43rd, whatever. And he got attacked by his big rival for the belt. And he's lying on the mat with the belt on him. And the other guy's cutting a promo. But then the ref starts counting. And then the belt itself becomes the 1,000th champion. <laughs> Meta. <laughs> oh. So I don't know where we're into in the, the history of the belt at this point. And it doesn't really, it's not really wrestled under metal heavyweight cheating rules anyway. Like mm. when they're, when Yoshihiko's faction members join in, they're usually doing it without the ref looking or occasionally they're operating Yoshihiko. Yeah. Is Yoshihiko the leader of the faction? I think the leader of the faction, let me just get his name up, Danos, Dan Shokodino. Oh, okay. Which in literal translation from Japanese is homosexual Dino. The reason I wanted to cover this promotion, and as Lorcan said, there were like other matches in the running for a DDT discussion, is just because of how absurd all of it is. Not all of it, though. That's the point. They have straight wrestling. Coach Ibushi wouldn't have made it his home promotion for like 10 years, even to the point that when he first signed with New Japan, it was like a shared deal. Yeah. Where he worked both DDT and New Japan for a while. And Kenny Omega even went back there during that brief period between him leaving New Japan for AEW um, before the pandemic happened and did a few matches there as well. So it's not just absurdity, and that's what, but it's the most crazy combination of all of it. Like, uh, Jun Akiyama's been a prominent part of the promotion for years. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, maybe it's the wrong word. The Because it's so insane, when it's insane, that's kind of... It has a reputation for being the most insane. Yes. It's like in this match itself, there's there's a moment, that the start even, just when the cannons go off, when the ref's like doing the pat down. Yeah, because Yoshihiku at the start has like shoulder cannons. 
And loads of, like, hidden weapons. Yeah. The idea just being that this is, like, the heel faction, and they cheat desperately. And they're just quite weird and, I don't know, disgusting is probably not the right word. But, like, like it's like I said, Dan Shokodino is is essentially a parody of all previous gay characters in wrestling. He just takes it to the next step. Like, he actively gives deep French kisses to his opponents or tries to force opponents into kissing each other. It's kind of part of the lore of the Golden Lovers, actually, that they had this tag team match. I can't, well, I know they had a tag team title match with Dino and Yoshihiko against the Golden Lovers, Ibushi and... Kenny Omega, and there's a moment where instead of him doing the double noggin knocker spot, he's trying to do the double lip lock, and they're trying desperately to fight from being forced to kiss each other. They fight it and fight it and fight it. Eventually, they're able to stop Dino and like get rid of him, and then just have a light little kiss on the lips with each other afterwards. <laughs> Again, like I think that's the only time we've, in theory, seen the literal part of the lovers of what's constantly alluded to in that relationship. Yeah. So that's law, Simon. In these matches involving sex blow-up dolls, it's also important law to one of the most, you know, forward-thinking storylines and character bits in all of wrestling. Mm, yeah, that, that's true. That's true. It's it's how it all interweaves, I guess, that, that gives DDT its... Because I guess you're right. If it was just silliness, this, it would have got stale. Well, it's, not, it's one of those things, because, like, we'll say now, the, the thing you texted me about was you were quite horrified by the length of the match. Like, this match goes on for 24 minutes. Yeah. And how do you sustain a joke for 24 minutes? And it is essentially one joke, which is this guy is having the stereotypical Japanese pro wrestling 2009 main event match, but with a sex doll. Yeah. I said it's kind of like the length is the length part of the parody of Japanese wrestling and it being too long? Maybe. But kind of rings more true now when you've got every Okada main event's got to have like 15 minutes of build-up to a 35-minute length match, you know? Yeah. The length of it is also sort of like the Sideshow Bob rake gag. <laughs> Oh, see, I don't know, the rake one, I think that works in length. I think this one jumps, even though it, the whole point is it's parodying length, I think it jumps the shark a little bit. I don't know, maybe you could tell the same point to four minutes shorter. It's also one of those things I think lots of wrestlers, especially the DDT wrestlers, really want to challenge themselves by doing, like I said, it's the broomstick test. Yeah. Like, during WrestleMania weekend, Chris Brooks, I think, had a match with Yoshihiko. And it was described as one of the best matches of the weekend by some (laughs) observers. Because there's also an interesting challenge of puppetry. Mm. How you operate these. Because like, just like how you defer to me things about wrestling and wrestling history, I have to defer to you about sex toys and blow-up dolls. (laughs) Bastard. Like, Yoshihiko is not a sophisticated puppet. No. There's no joints there. It's not even like a marionette doll that you've got to do, like, mm. all these different things. Uh, you can't even put your hand up it like sooty. Yeah. Mm. I think that's the deluxe model. But there are moments of it where Kojirobushi's operation of Yoshiko is really impressive, like when they're doing the fighting on a German suplex spot and they're doing yeah. standing switches with each other. Or when he's doing the, the tired and they're having the slap-off situation and he's operating the arm and flicking it backwards and forwards to slap himself in the face 
or when he gives himself a pile driver at one point where he literally you see him planting the two feet down yeah and then doing a handstand so that they can do the drop down that was clever that was really clever and then we get to the big spot of that though towards the oh. end and the message that you sent about Kotobushi's condition do you want to say what it is it's like i can see what now why Kotobushi's neck is held together by tape and prayer i mean imagine if you got a career ending injury off of a match with yoshihiko oh, that that's just tragic really isn't it but the but what we're talking about is the big spot is that he does that this move was already being parodied as overkill in 2009 where we are 14 years later which is where yoshihiko hits ibushi with multiple canadian destroyers like a rolling canadian destroyer situation yeah could be slightly higher could be slightly less it's a roughly six canadian destroyers in a row I mean, we're now at the point, obviously, where uh, Ricky Morton and Rob... Oh, I can't remember if it was Ricky Morton or Robert Gibson did one. It was Ricky Morton. Yeah. Uh, Dusty Rhodes, admittedly, does a really good one. But that's sort of diluted by the fact that everyone does one. Well, I was just... I really got... You know, you don't want to be that grumpy old man. You don't want to be Cornette. I mean, if Jim Cornette watched this match, his head genuinely might explode. Like, he might spontaneously combust. Like, when I watched the Jungle Boy-Sammy Guevara match, and it was recently on Dynamite, and it was driving me crazy. Because I think Jungle Boy hit, like, a top-rope Canadian Destroyer at one point. And then Sammy Guevara, I think, got up to stop him doing a top-rope move next after that. Yeah. And it's just, you don't want to be that person. But it's one of the reasons, again, why I don't think AEW is, like, the perfect product. I'm never going to be... Like, you know, just, again, all this stuff on Twitter and everyone going mad at each other for different things. And never attach your personality or anything to a particular personal promotion. Individuals will let you down. This 14 years on, we're still getting overuse of Destroyers and, like, Bad Bunny's using it as his finishing manoeuvre. Yeah. Although, to be fair, at least it was his finishing move. Yeah. <laughs> and at least he executes it well. That would be a good article to do, actually, about the history of the Canadian Destroyer. Mm. Where did it come from? When did it start becoming... It's Petey Williams, isn't it? Well, no, Petey Williams didn't invent it. Because I know that I've seen a video of a guy called Quiet Storm, who was an indie wrestler. And he was in the very early ROH matches. And he's been based in Japan for, like, 20 years. He's very short, but he really is bulked up, so he's like a power wrestler. So he's always like a underneath card junior heavyweight but he has his niche and he's doing he's living the life he's always wanted to live okay and i saw him do it on like one of the maximos i think it was on like a music video or something Mm. and that was definitely before peter williams had gone to tna and become established with the canadian destroyer and i think the basic problem with the canadian destroyer was that peter williams did it and it was like his calling card yeah and back then, the idea was, if he hits this move, it's over, it's done. Yeah. No one kicks out of the Canadian Destroyer, you know, like the Falcon Arrow. And so that worked. Problem was, first with Petey Williams, it became such a popular feature that it was like, he had to do it every time he saw him. It's like, this is the thing we go to, we see Peter Williams for. It's like how every Dudley Boys match or angle or whatever has to involve a table. Especially on, like, the house show, sir. Yeah. So that starts to dilute it then. And I think I was starting the thing with Petey Williams. Like, he'd hit it, but because he's not going to win the match, the referee would be out. Yeah. Or if he's a baby face, or even a heel, he'll hit it after the match to get his heat back or something. Mm. 
So then it's like, well, everyone wants to see it. And if it's a thing people want to see, there's lots of wrestlers that will start doing it in order to get that, you know, not do the, the hard miles to get the, the reaction. Yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. And like I said, to the point that it's parody in 2009 to where we are now is just kind of staggering. And as I've said, I would challenge wrestling for one year. Everyone just do a moratorium on Canadian Destroyers. And just then a year after that, see if you even want to do it again. Or if there's not like a another hip new move for everyone to do. Yeah. Because they'll figure an alternative. They, they just will. And there's just so... The, and like you say, the cliches of wrestling are on full display in this match. But it's even clever with like... Ibushi parodies the whole working the leg yeah. aspect of it. It's almost like he's doing a Tanahashi tribute at one point. Although he doesn't do any dragon screw leg whips, but he does tie Yoshihiko up in like a seated Indian deathlock. Yeah. <laughs> Stretches him for a long time as well. Puts him in the figure four and they even do the reverse spots. <laughs> I like that. But I guess I wonder that's him looking at, okay, so what can I do with the sort of the, I don't know what I had to describe it, the pliability of a blow up yeah the pliability of this creation it can't stand on its own two feet so i have to operate it in that way yeah but its legs are quite long and bendy well let's do an extended period where i'm working the leg and again it's like in many ways you've got to admire it for going full method and not cutting corners like Mm. he works that leg in a submission hold for the length of time he would have if it was just a regular opponent. Yeah. If it was just a best of the Super Juniors match against Ryosuke Taguchi or something. Who's as close as New Japan have to a DDT wrestler, I suppose. I suppose in a sense having a, a blow-up doll, it, like they're not going to try and get their stuff in, are they? No. So. you got They're very selfless, to be fair, yeah. blow-up dolls. <laughs> I guess that's why you love them so much. <laughs> Brilliant. The blow up doll is a is an odd one. I mean, it was just a comedy staple. I remember the first time I was like kind of aware of blow up dolls was <laughs> I'll just stop that. Was watching the uh, first of the bottom live videos, mm. which was a popular sitcom in the UK in the early nineties that then became a success. Every other year, they do a live tour of theaters and then release it as a VHS. It was always them. Because it was always a rude show, but it was rude within the limits of what you could get away with at 9pm on BBC Two. Yeah. But the live shows, they could say and do whatever they like. Yeah. And so Rick gets an ordered sex doll, and he's trying to get Eddie to leave the flat so he can use it. <laughs> uh, she's called Monica. Ah. She does reappear in the sequel, where it turns out they both have blow-up sex dolls. His is called Monica, and Eddie's is called Lesbo Ferdinand. <laughs> Love it. Love every part of that. It maybe kind of proves that whole point that, and also with the Steen Generico Super Dragon Excalibur match, wrestling hasn't really got much more absurd than it had 20 years ago. Yeah. Like there was a point where, I guess it was ECW that really popularized just going crazy i mean it was always there there was always violence and craziness you had the chic in california and all that jerry lawler concession stand brawls and it's just been that gradual one-upping of things with ecw with fmw 
IWA King of the Death match, then that carrying over to CZW and XPW post ECW. I suppose the mainstream effect of it. Yeah, the mainstreamization of the death match in those AEW matches with like Moxley and Jericho and even Nick Gage. Yeah, I was going to say, and the craziness as well, because obviously Jerry Springer, uh, I read an obituary of him quite recently, and he, I didn't really, I didn't know this, but the Jerry Springer show started as a topical talk show where they would talk about what's going on in the world. Yeah, it was just one of dozens of Oprah clones. Yeah. Like, Razor Ramon appeared on one, where they were doing a whole thing for, like, a Make-A-Wish. Yeah. But then, like, two or three years later, because I remember reading about that in the WF magazine, it was the only time... I'd heard of the Jerry Springer show until it might have been on Tarrant's on TV where you've suddenly seen this insanity yeah. that then, as you say, bled into WWF Attitude Era and was a real cultural phenomenon. So Tarrant on TV, I just realised we have an international audience. That was basically... A TV presenter Chris Tarrant doing the wide, wacky world of entertainment and just showing these weird things that happen, weird commercials. Some of them genuinely funny, clever. Some of them just those crazy Japanese with their (laughs) endurance game show. Because it's like Takeshi's Castle and all that sort of stuff. And there was one where it was like the two contestants were put in the middle of like a desert in this glass perspex boxes, heat coming down on them. And who's going to be the first one to give up? But it's again, it's adding on top of it. They were also having like beautiful women walking past with jugs of water. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> oh, Japan. Well, there was. Like, I think it was like an Italian, and they, they always joke. Oh, this is the most popular. Show. Yeah, it's so much of it's just the Brits going those wacky foreigners. Whereas now, like I've said, I've said to plenty of people, all the stuff we see on TV now is the stuff that we used. To, Chris Tarrant used to say. And look at these guys. And then Tarrant would always try and balance it out. You know, it's not just laughing at foreigners because there would also be a very serious Danish commercial about the perils of smoking or something. Yeah. (laughs) It's art too, guys. It's like the equivalent of Jerry Springer's final thoughts. I did joke. I wonder if that's what he did on his deathbed. (laughs) Probably. Probably. Jerry seemed to be able to laugh at himself. He knew what he was. And the wackiness of it... I don't remember ever seeing him talk about wrestling on it, but if Tarrant on TV had existed in 2009, I don't think it did. I certainly wasn't watching it by that point. This would be something that he'd put on there. It's like on Have I Got News For You, when again they had... And it was from a DDT show, I'm like 99.9% sure... Joey Ryan doing his dick-flipping spot for the first time. Against, I think it was, against Dan Shokudino. Because his whole gimmick was that he would do all these things, including grabbing wrestlers by their balls and their dick. And the joke being that Joey Ryan's dick overpowered him. Yeah. And yeah, like that was on Have I Got News For You, which is just... And then, boy, did Joey Ryan have news for us. Yeah, I was going to say. Well, he didn't have the news. Other people broke it, but, you know... One of those situations, yeah. So it's one of those things where it's almost like you're almost admiring its artistic integrity by doing it full on. Because it's always like, I always say the thing with satire is the medium is the message. You do the best satire if you're satirizing the product through the medium that it's being shown through. That's why I don't think like Britain's always failed to have a daily show because we don't have a media landscape similar to that of what America has 
that fits that format. Similarly, Americans don't get panel shows because they don't have that sort of parlor games culture that we've always had. Yeah. And that sort of need to be the wittiest person in the room or, or just, you know, general witticisms and word games and par- like we said, like, would I lie to you and, and things like that. There were versions of that in America in like the very early days of TV, but the late night format continued and that carried on from the nightclub acts of new york at the time Mm. and that's where that grew from and that's why late night format works in america and it always has failed when they try to do it in the uk in the format that they do it anyway which is one person behind a desk five nights a week yeah and so similarly if you're gonna parody wrestling the best place to do it would be through wrestling itself that makes the most sense yes and so the ultimate parody of a wrestling match and the cliches of it is to do it with an inanimate object. Yeah. Yeah, so much of Ibushi is not quite there yet. Like, we at this point, he's like, he is a hot act. He'd, like, done, we, we'd done that. I don't know if it was the same year that the Chikara match that we covered with him mm. against Generico and Jigsaw and Nick Jackson. Oh, yeah. But yeah. he'd done a couple of tours of the US scene. So he was hot commodity. And very soon after this, he's in New Japan and fighting for the junior heavyweight title and... I think he was the first non-signed talent to win the best of the Super Juniors, having those matches Prince David and Low-Key. And then eventually they sign him, and after a long period of him being... It's clear that Ibushi walks to the beat of his own drum. <laughs> and it's a miracle that New Japan were able to contain him for as long as they did in many ways, in hindsight. Yeah. But we've just really seen the high-flying aspect of Ibushi more than anything here. We don't... Although I suppose the slap exchange in a little bit is like the version of Ibushi that had those matches with Minoru Suzuki that were like Pancrase tributes or his his match with Tai Chi that was literally just leg kicks for the whole entire run. Like, Like he does so many different things. Yeah, until this Chris Brooks match. It seems to be the the Yoshihiko match that people say you do watch. (laughs) <laughs> if you watch any match. I'm trying to remember if DDT also had an invisible wrestler. I think they did, but I might be wrong. But I know that there have been invisible wrestlers in the indie scene. Yeah. To the point that Bryce Remsburg refereed a match between two invisible wrestlers. <laughs> and that was Bryce Remsburg. Of course it was Bryce. Sort of enacting the cliches of a yeah. match. And he was doing all these things like... They did the dive spot where loads of extras like fell <laughs> at the point that he jumped off. You know, and he does the whole multiple cradle segment. One, two, one, two, one, one, and so Amazing. on. Um I do you, I so you're not a Jim Cornette purist, or are you? Like No. So it doesn't it wouldn't bother you seeing this on a show, but it's gotta be the right show. No. I don't like you wouldn't want to see this on AEW or would you? It would have to make sense. I mean, the closest thing which which got a great laugh at the time was the Orange Cassidy versus Pac match, where he slowly rolls away. But the idea always with that has always been that this is tricking the opponents into a false sense of security and then surprising them at the right moments. And that was also the match where you saw, where you heard Jim Ross get it, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. I do like that light bulb moment of, Oh! <laughs> <laughs> But, but yeah, I, I think, for me, wrestling's a variety show, and it's how those different bits of variety interact with each other. So, the, the silliness in a self-contained universe, that would tire on me. 
but silliness interacting with seriousness. Laurel and Hardy, like, it was a straight man and a funny man. Like, Morecambe and Wise, straight man, funny man. It, it's a tried and tested formula, you know? Yeah. Although, weirdly, like, Ibushi's acting as a straight man, but he's doing everything for the one. Yeah. <laughs> because it's not like... You're... Well, mate, is Yoshihiko the straight man in this situation? Obviously, it's not Dino. That's clear in the name. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only thing in a weird way you could complain about, because Ibushi is legit feuding with these guys. Yeah. But he also plays him with their game, in a way. And I do love that it's like... A double-double cross at the end of the match. They even parody that. And, you know, technically we shouldn't talk about this because this is another match. After he wins both titles, Yoshiko's faction mates turn on him because he's let them down. I don't know if the joke's meant to be that it turns out that Yoshiko's a cyborg because his face comes off and there's, like, wiring or something underneath. Like, his Westworld or something. So they attack Yoshiko and then Ibushi clears them out, helps Yoshiko to his feet. So, again, it's that cliche of the sign of, especially in japan of the sign of respect to shaking hands after the match and then ibushi small packages himself through yoshihiko and loses a belt that he's just spent <laughs> 24 minutes wrestling for i dropped himself on his own head several times yeah oh brilliant yeah yoshihiko like i said he's still there to this day this is the fourth incarnation of Yoshihiko we've had. Oh, like Tiger Mask. Yeah, well, so, well, it's the same blow-up doll, but alterations are made. Ah, right. The first time, uh, one wrestler did a knee drop on his head and it just exploded. <laughs> and it was like, oh my god! And everyone sells it like death. You mean how, like, Loki tried to do that during the X Division series when he couldn't be arsed with Kevin Nash's bullshit? And then he got rebirthed and the second version of Yoshihiko was basically like a great mooter parody. See, I have to I have to ask because it's DDT. When you say rebirthed, no one literally gave birth to him in the ring, did they? No, no one gave birth to him in the ring. But he re-emerged with a new look. Great mooter inspired look. And then I think it was in that tag match I was talking about earlier, Kenny Omega did like a giant swing that sent him all the way to the outside and his head cracked open again. Uh, and went away and so then they're double teaming Dino Dano or whatever his name is and when it looks like all is lost The Undertaker's American Badass song starts up and the third version of Yoshihiko is an American Badass style Undertaker <laughs> you've done it now <laughs> brilliant then the third version of Yoshihiko was shot to death <laughs> talk about a shoot brother <laughs> and this Hulk Hogan-inspired version that we saw in this match was the fourth version. I don't know how many other variants have been there since then. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, we've set some homework for our listeners then. Yeah, do, yeah, we we won't read it. <laughs> <laughs> You're not. Are you going to dig into more Yoshihiko matches, or I was just <sighs> looking him up because he's had many more matches with Ibushi. They they both took part again. This is like the most. DDT thing ever. They were both took part two months later in a 108 man battle royal. <laughs> it's an odd number. Well, no, it's literally an even number. Yes, I knew you were going to do that as well. That's why I did that. You know, because DDT have an annual show where they go to like a campsite. Like, yeah. I don't know if it's like Japan's version of Center Parks. <laughs> and in that one, Yoshiko was involved in a tag in a four way with Keisuke. Ishii, which I assume is one of the other two guys ringside with him. And they took on Kojibushi and Dick Togo. Oh. Uh, Mammoth Handa and Michael Nakazawa. 
Okay. Obviously, because that was how Makedi and Megumi became friends. Muscle Sakai and Sanshiro Takagi. And that match ran for 59 minutes, 6 seconds. Jesus. It's just, all of it is mad. Their last match against each other was, again, for the KOD Openweight title. And Ibushi beat him again. And this was in March of 2015. Okay. So I know for certain Ibushi's done at least one G1 at that point. (laughs) (laughs) Gado's like, can you stop prattling about with this? (laughs) Your mileage will vary with something like this. I enjoyed it. I could have also enjoyed a 12-minute version. But I get what they were going with. And, again, it's just a fascinating reflection of all the different aspects of Japanese culture. I I think you can spend a lifetime trying to study Japanese culture and still barely scratch the surface. Obviously, you got... Although, this was great. I had had a course the other day, and there was this guy from Stoke-on-Trent. And he was saying, my son's into all that anime." (laughs) <laughs> brilliant watch some of it we're not saying you have to watch like that's what wrestling should be all the time yeah you'll get the idea within five minutes if you're gonna want to watch this or not yeah we'll have to watch some proper i don't know proper ddt this is proper ddt but the other side of ddt at some straight point, laced ddt yeah maybe kenny omega and kota Ibushi's match either sumo hall or budokan there's loads of stuff going on. There's a guy called Harashima, I think he's very highly thought of. There's your Nakayama stuff. Joseph Monticello, I think, basically, I think his favourite wrestler from Japan at the moment is sort of like the equivalent of their ace there, like Okada or Tanahashi or whatever. But that's this episode of Match of the Week. My voice survived. I was giving my vocal cords uh, a version of an Indian Deathlock. <laughs> Next episode, we're going to do the first silver screen visions in a long time. Woo! And we're doing a film. We do need to do... There's a couple of TV shows we should do. And there are a couple of big anniversaries happening this year for wrestling-related movies. I don't know if The Iron Claw is going to come out this year or not. But what is the anniversary is that it's 15 years since Mickey Rourke was maybe robbed at the Oscars. That's up for debate. For his portrayal of Randy the Ram Robinson... Yeah. In the film directed by Darren Aronofsky, a director who cultivates heated opinions, more so than a Yoshihiko match. More so? <laughs> Bloody hell. Well, maybe about the same. I don't know, have you ever been on film Twitter? It's almost as bad as wrestling Twitter, especially come Oscar time. Bloody hell. Oh my god, I have been scolded by the hotness of your take. Anyway. <laughs> so that's all we'll be discussing Assuming no five-star matches in the interim. But until then, Simon, if people want to get in touch with you for uh, tips on the best places to purchase inflatable companionship puppets, how can they do so? I mean, your boy is trying to get a Love Honey sponsorship. Uh, you can reach me on Twitter where I'm so known as Simon Cross Free. Free for the number of orifices in a female sex doll. Yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> they can't be like proper orifices otherwise we could never inflate it well all I'm, all I'm saying is you've got some research to be doing my name is Lorcan Mullen that's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A-N as in animatronic 
That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, letterbox. If you put that gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtyspod.gmail.com. LMTYspod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. But there's nothing left to say at this point, except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. My name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a great week. Until the next week.